Welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma-informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host Georgia and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks and refer to the organisations in the show notes below. This episode of the podcast is a special edition centered around poor body image and eating disorders, as this week is Body Image and Eating Disorders Awareness Week in Australia, a national event which takes place every year in the first week of September. Now, I'm joined today by two incredible professionals, Deb and Nicole, whom I work alongside at Person-Centered Psychology. And I wanted to bring in um, both of their really, really insightful lenses to this issue, which is really close to my heart. If you're interested in hearing more about my personal experience with my body image and eating disorders, you can check out the previous episode. And in this episode, we're going to hear from both Deb and Nicole, who will share their insights about what eating disorders are, how we can take action, what are the signs to look for, what are the causes, and really this is just an absolutely beautiful, holistic conversation that I hope you'll be able to get some value from either personally or in the way that you relate to other people, whether that's your martial arts students, just friends and family and people around you in the world. So Deb is an experienced psychologist. She has focused primarily on eating disorders. She has 15 years experience working with eating disorders across a range of conditions, including anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorders, other specified feeding or eating disorders, as well as the multitude of people who have serious eating disorder symptoms, but just don't fit neatly in a diagnostic box. Nicole is an accredited practicing dietitian with a special interest in eating disorders, disordered eating behavior, body image concern, and mental health. Nicole is passionate about practicing from a non-diet, body accepting, and health at every size, or HAYS philosophy, and uses these principles to help her counsel her clients towards a positive and peaceful mind-body-food relationship. Uh, Both Deb and Nicole are ANZ-AED eating disorders credentialed professionals. I hope you get a lot of value from this episode. Please let me know if you'd like more content like this or content on other topics where we can bring in professionals to give hopefully some actionable advice, which is what I hope you take away from this episode. So what does it mean to be an ANZ-AED eating disorders credentialed professional? Am I answering this one? Go for it. Georgia, it's a, it's a really exciting new initiative by the Australian New Zealand Academy of Eating Disorders, which really was born out of a desire to have those seeking help to know who they could trust, to kind of give them informed care, um, educated care. Eating disorders are such a sort of unique illness and, and a really serious illness and working with people who understand the complexities of eating disorders and who have experience and training is really important. So to to be credentialed, you go through a sort of an application process where you submit information about the experience you've had working with this population, the specific training you've had, and that is independently assessed. 
and either you are then guided to seek further education, which is wonderful, and there are wonderful resources available for people to upskill in this area, or if you've got adequate experience already, then you are credentialed and you get this cool little badge and that really makes it easy for the public to identify who they can reach out to who might might have the appropriate experience. Mm. Okay, so I'm just thinking out loud now, but I know both of you are credentialed in, and you do very different roles within your practice. Um, so what other types of professionals get credentialed? Do you both know? You might not, um, but now I'm thinking like exercise professionals, like personal trainers or martial arts coaches, like can we get credentialed? That's such a good question. I th- yeah, I think... Anyone who is under the banner of mental health care providers can be credentialed, as far as I'm aware, whether that's um, or psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. Social workers, yeah. Um, I think maybe even like community care nurses. Yes, I think, I think yeah. mental health nurses. Mental I health believe. nurses, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure about exercise physiologists, to be fair. No, I'm not sure. I, I'd sure love to. I think that would be amazing if, yeah. if that could be included. That would be wonderful. Yeah. They excitingly announced actually at the conference, the ANZAD conference over last weekend, that they will be extending credentialing to GPs. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's a wonderful move forward as well. I'm not sure of the exact timeline of that. Yeah, absolutely. And we can put some information to that in the show notes to direct people to after this episode or whenever they're ready. Um, so we're here today to talk about body image or poor body image, really, and eating disorders. So what are the differences and the similarities between poor body image and eating disorders? Yeah, you, you start. No doubt I'll, I'll interject <laughs> you, I'm sure as well. you can jump in. So, I mean, sadly, in today's world, body dissatisfaction or going through stages of not feeling connected or not liking parts of our body is normative. And I mean, how how can it not be when we live in this very pervasive weight stigma, fat phobia society where we idealise this thin ideal or this idea of perfection on how our body should appear and be in the world? It In saying that, though, we understand that people who might experience body dissatisfaction, it's sort of a spectrum and that at different stages or at different times it can fluctuate over time. But we also want to acknowledge that maybe people who have experienced body dissatisfaction don't always also have a disorder as well. So for some people, poor body image does result in efforts to change their body, um, whether that's appearance, whether that's mechanisms of changing how our body presents to the world. And we have an industry, a billion-dollar industry, that just likes to promote exactly how we can do that and then only further idealises that, all those outcomes and results of those efforts. Because we are specifically talking about disordered eating, what we want to highlight is that dieting itself specifically is one of the, the largest risk factors in developing an eating disorder. Anything I've forgotten in there? No, no. you haven't forgotten anything. <laughs> but you know me, I've, I've always stuff Please, I can add. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, as, as Nicole said, that with dieting being the number one risk factor for uh, behavioural risk factor for developing an eating disorder, 
the transition from poor body image, which um, is sadly normative, into an eating disorder really exists along a spectrum. And when, you know, there, there's a big difference between probably an experience we've all had where we've got a special occasion and we've got dressed up and we look in the mirror and we feel dissatisfied with how our body looks, um, which of course is harder for people who live in the sorts of bodies that society tends to criticise. Um, however, not, not everybody with that experience goes on to develop an eating disorder, which is much more sort of a, a absolute preoccupation and over-evaluation of how important one's sort of aesthetic body is and sort of extreme measures to try and change that. And I think, too, when we're going through those continual cycles over a period of time, we're almost changing how we view our body from this sort of beautiful vessel that carries us through the world to more of a, an aesthetic object, as, as hard as that is to say, but that, that's sometimes how people feel. And being able to also respect and care for it in a way that feels like a disconnect, feels like it's not something that's no, no longer in their control. And I think that being one of the precipitating factors, but also acknowledging that there's another a range of components that also contribute to the development of an eating disorder, which includes things like genetics, environmental factors, socio-cultural factors, um, personality traits as well. So sort of then generating sort of this, this perfect storm in a way, developing into an eating disorder. Yeah, we're going to talk a bit about some of the signs and symptoms uh, later on. Um, but from what you're saying and what my experience has been, both personally and as a human being, just like living in the world and talking to people, it seems really common. Um, I've got in my notes here that we're estimating that eating disorders impact one in 20 people. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure whether maybe it's even higher than that. Um and we've alluded to some of the reasons why this might be so prevalent already, you know, thinking about the media, society, maybe even our individual dispositions. But I'm wondering if you could expand on that a bit more. Like, why do we have this problem? Such a good question, <laughs> Georgia. And, and um, I, I tend to agree that I think 1 in 20 probably significantly underrates the number of people struggling with disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, and, and there's a range of things that contribute to that. <sighs> Why? <laughs> it's, a, it's a really big question and probably one that we won't answer perfectly today. I, th I think it's multifaceted. We've got sort of the generational trauma and passing down of body ideals. We've got this sort of massive multifaceted marketing machine that medicalizes the size of one's body, moralizes the size of one's body, and has a huge amount of resource to market sort of products and ideologies into, you know, places that I think the public, um, which we all are in various ways, um, you know, th that we expect to trust like our medical our medical field. We know that you know through through sort of goals of 
um, selling weight loss drugs, for example, um, there is this real medicalization and this idea that we can tell somebody's health by the size of their body. And that's scary. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, for some folk who genetically are naturally predisposed to to have you know, have bigger bodies, um, uh, there are very real lived experiences of stigmatization, of critis- criticism, of sort of overarching generalizations made about their health and the way they live based on the size of their body, and that is incredibly harmful to those individuals and that harm ripples out to every member of society. Mm. Absolutely. (laughs) Anything to add? Gosh, like you said, I don't think it's a question that we can completely (laughs) dive into without being here for the next two hours. I think to answer also maybe another area of sort of looking at that statistic is it might whether or not it's a representation of everyone who's also being diagnosed as well, whether that's the current or whether that's um, people who have still not sought out help because of all those reasons that Deb's gone through. But also I do think on the other side as well that, and hopefully it continues, but our screening process and our awareness is growing. So hopefully people are feeling a little bit more safe to reach out or other people are starting to provide that support or hopefully more people are screening and then identifying eating disorders that would have gone on undiagnosed for many, many years. Thank you both for those beautiful insights. And I don't expect you to have the answers to (laughs) some of the biggest societal problems today. Um, We wish we could. (laughs) And if we did know, like, you know, that's just one part to this journey that I suppose we're all on as a civilization towards being in our bodies rather than trying to control our bodies. Um, yes. And so for folks who might be listening to this thinking maybe some of this is resonating for me personally or maybe there's someone close to me or even for anyone who's just thinking, okay, well, I want to have a better awareness now. I want to be better at detecting the signs. What are some of the signs that somebody might be developing an eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, if you're listening and... That might be something that's resonating with you. Great, let's reach out. But um, thinking about some of the more key signs or symptoms that maybe either we might be feeling or someone we know and love, we've noticed these things. Some of those key signs could be including um, noticing someone's changes in eating behaviours, which might even be sort of their demeanour change when they're sitting at the table having having dinner whether that might be noticing more habitual eating patterns, um, even sort of um, playing around with their food or not being able to finish their food or um, just noting some of those subtle differences that previously hasn't been something that they've raised. Um, Repetitive behaviours before and after mealtimes or uncharacteristic changes to their diet, whether they're going on a new diet or whether they've decided to remove something from their diet or even down to noticing that they're talking a lot about their health and wellness, which doesn't mean that they can't be talking about health, but when they become really quite rigid or they become very strongly viewed in that. Um, Other things that might also pop up are personality changes, 
um, mood changes, noticing that they're also not coming out and being social as much or being a lot more isolated. Um, and then some of the physical traits might be if you notice that they seem really low energy, they're complaining of some gastric issues, um, that they're being they're sick a lot more than usual or um, they're feeling really cold. They're the ones that are the main popping up. I, I don't want to also think like we're also watching and, and waiting for all those slight changes. But if it is someone that you know and you love and you're sort of starting to see some of these things evolve and change, then it's um, also acknowledging that your role potentially in, in raising that awareness for something, for someone, is what we've sort of mentioned before. Maybe there's some of the reasons why someone hasn't felt okay reaching out up until now and is looking for potentially that support person to know that there is someone that they can turn to or that they even know that there is an option as well so if you are raising it with a loved one think about it in a way of being really gentle really supportive really compassionate and in a non-judgmental way that main objective of letting them know that I'm here and I can help you find that support that you need because whether or not they might feel ready or they might feel that shame or they might be fearful of being judged, you could be that person that just helps them open the door. So beautiful. I love your <laughs> compassion, Nicole. Um, feel so privileged to work alongside you. Oh, thank you. It's, it's so tricky too, I think, in today's world where diet culture is so prevalent um, because what is what – society refers to kind of a healthy diet and and what becomes sort of disordered eating or an eating disorder um we tend to probably err towards the idea that any diet is disordered um but that of course you know wanting to nourish our bodies well um and have a variety of food and feel sort of energized is it's a really wonderful thing i think an analogy that I use a lot in talking to clients is that, you know, probably the three of us could go out for a meal and we could have a couple of glasses of wine and then we could go home and have a couple of glasses of water and brush our teeth and go to bed. Mm. Um, for, for somebody who has genetic um, sort of vulnerabilities or who has experiences of trauma in their life, or who has sort of just a, a makeup that means that they are more vulnerable to developing an addiction, those couple of glasses of wine might start sort of a, a weekend of binge drinking, um, and that, that can be a real problem. It, it is the same that, that while we would encourage everybody to stay away from diets, um, that some people can dabble. And some people can try something new for a couple of weeks and realise actually that that's boring and restrictive and they don't want to do it anymore and they can return to sort of normal eating. Um, but for other people, that becomes more and more rigid, more and more sort of locked in and people can find themselves really preoccupied, constantly thinking about food, constantly measuring their bodies, constantly sort of seeking change and altering their life greatly to achieve that and so you know we don't need to necessarily be calling a psychologist um, every time somebody says I might try this diet but if that becomes sort of life limiting then that's probably an indication someone needs support. 
Yeah, absolutely agree. In a world where everybody has different opinions or there's new things that are coming out in the nutrition world, I think it's just being mindful about how that relates to you as an individual, what is right for your body, but then just having that caution and awareness of the dangers of that as well Um, and then just noticing some of those changes or passions in our loved ones or in ourselves too. Mm. Yeah, and I think we can't almost talk enough about some of these signs because, like, for me personally, when I was in it, I I was not aware, especially for a long time in the beginning, like, oh, this is problematic because I was like, I'm doing a healthy thing. This is all, like, aligned with research and I'm reading research and I'm, like, implementing things that are going to make me live longer and I'm doing all of these positive things. Yes. Um, and... Then the flip side to that was those like negative things, which for me were like compulsive checking, compulsive weighing, um, like, you know, checking everything to down to the calorie. Um, and I also had this like a strange thing where I organized, not a strange thing, I don't know how to really put it, but I had this odd preoccupation where I really struggled with stillness and I would often feel that with like eating based activities, yeah. which would then throw off my like goals and that created like quite a cycle um, that was very negative and I think that uh, there was there was a moment where I realized what some of those behaviors might have been um, and so I think it is really helpful that we do have an awareness that like maybe this is not necessarily serving you that well because you don't want to wait until you're at the point where you are like needing to be admitted to hospital or you know even needing to see a psychologist although I think everybody could benefit from <laughs> seeing a psychologist my point is more that we don't want to get to crisis mode before we're like oh yeah this is an issue and again like Deb said we don't need to be like oh you shouldn't ever go on a, a diet to somebody because it's not you know necessarily going to be an eating disorder um but I think the more awareness we have about the potential paths that that can lead towards the better that's going to be for looking after ourselves and also for looking after our friends and family yeah I couldn't agree more and thanks for sharing that yeah it's really special absolutely and I I think you you really highlight there Georgia in, in so kind of bravely sharing your story a little bit of your experience um that it so often starts as this attempt to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is so much information that sounds really scientific and that is presented to us in ways that make it really sort of appealing. Tell us that kind of following these plans will yeah, increase longevity, um, will sort of move us towards a higher state of being somehow. And yeah, I think it's really important to emphasise that. Nobody chooses an eating disorder. Mm. And, you know, I think still that it's improving every year. There is some stigmatisation of eating disorders. Um, and I think it's really important to, to really note nobody, nobody chooses that. Mm. Um, it just starts as an attempt to sort of improve something. And I think further too that on the it's not that we choose – it's also, it's not a diet that did just go too far. It was a precipitating diet that may have just cycled and cycled and with some of those other traits and genetics and predispositions, it developed into that. Yeah. But it's never anyone's fault and that's why the support is always here and available. Yeah. And Sorry. Um, 
something else that you said that just set off a chain of thoughts in me. Is <laughs> <laughs> um, the kind of the neurobiological factors that contribute to vulnerability, and and one of the things you mentioned, this kind of desire to be active all the time. That I think five or ten years ago we really hypothesised as purely eating disordered, and this kind of constant idea of movement and burning and. Um, but actually, you know, some of the, the neurobiological research that's come out recently shows that some people are just genetically more predisposed to want to move, yeah. to, to be active. Um, and, you know, again, in completely separate field, um, uh, a Kiwi rugby player, John Kerwin, coined the term in his book, um, gosh, what was it called, All Blacks Don't Cry, of being an active relaxer, um, which I can personally uh, resonate. I was going to say act, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, for me it's much more relaxing to go for a walk along the beach than it yeah. is to sit and, and sort of be still. And you sort of combine that then with, with some other vulnerabilities and that, that, that symptom that you were describing of kind of wanting to be in perpetual motion, suddenly we, we've got this new understanding of yeah. why that presents for some people yeah that is not really the way that I was thinking about it which is interesting and I think for for me the pandemic was a huge spotlight um on that aspect of my personality was this inability to be still Mm. um and so like one of the things that I would feel stillness with was eating and then other things would be like achieving training you know seeing people just constantly doing something Um, And I really struggled with those moments of quiet. Um, And, you know, when I was struggling with my body image, when I was struggling with, you know, really restrictive eating, then that kind of compounded the situation because it meant that um, I would go through these cycles of binging and then restricting. Um, And now I see it really as being like a skill as well and and I think part of that is you know different people might be like an active relaxer but for me as well it was like I was anxious if I wasn't doing something and the pandemic was a really good opportunity to be like okay uh, I know I'm an extroverted person and that's okay (laughs) um but there has to be some balance where there's some times where you know I can sit and um read a book or watch tv and not have to be doing five other things at the same time and I think that's also a reflection of our sort of plugged in society where we're quick to change tabs or change apps and things like that and our attention is constantly jumping from um, thing to thing. Uh, so again, like like we've alluded to already many times, it is such a complex issue and probably yeah. one that's interwoven with a lot of the, I suppose, benefits and drawbacks to our modern society and technology is a part of that and there are many other ideas that have um, been constructed and then interwoven within why we're in this position that we're here in today. Without a doubt, absolutely. So the theme for this week, so this podcast is being released in the middle of Body Image and Eating Disorders Awareness Week and the theme is the time to act is now. So let's say I'm listening and some of these symptoms resonate for me or perhaps I'm noticing them in someone who's close to me. What is the next step when we're recognising some of those early or maybe even not so early signs that someone might be experiencing an eating disorder? Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I think research shows we see in clinic, but the earlier someone accesses support, the better the treatment outcome. 
So there are a number of reasons why someone may not access care. I think we've sort of gone through that already. So, oh, hold on. The signs. Oh, you're up. (laughs) (laughs) So the next step after we might have noticed some of these signs and symptoms um, and we're like, okay, it's time to reach out, it's time to to do the first step or take action. What's our first step? Um, yeah, so, so so if we're, you know, we've recognised, yeah, I, I need to do something, whether that or not that's for ourselves or for someone else, I guess there's, there's a number of first steps. Really, you know, obviously I'm a psychologist, Nicole's a dietitian, but we do really want to highlight the importance of a multidisciplinary team. And um, you might hear us slip into um, calling that an MDT. We know eating disorders are really complex and they are biological, they are psychological, they are social. Um, And so having a GP you trust is a really important part of care. Um, And so, so often reaching out to a GP first can be a wonderful thing to do for, for many reasons, whether or not the problem is new or you are newly identifying something as a problem, there, there might be really serious medical things going on and a GP is best placed to quickly assess that. And the way that the Australian system is set up, GPs are also sort of the doorway into to the rest of your treatment team. So they can recommend psychologists, they can recommend dietitians. Um, and they can provide referrals that open up Medicare rebates for other services. Now, of course, like all professions um, across all sectors, not all GPs are created equal. And and as I referenced before, credentialing will be extended out Mm. to GPs, which is just wonderful. If you've got a GP you already trust, head straight to them and they'll be able to support and guide you in the right direction. If, if not, uh, currently ANZ, AD, I believe, certainly Eating Disorders Victoria and the Butterfly Foundation have a list of sort of recommended practitioners. So you can pop on there and find a GP close to you who has some knowledge and some experience in working with people with disordered eating and eating disorders. Hayes Australia is also a wonderful resource um, and they recommend... Um, a range of clinicians who are haze aligned, which um, we think is crucial, whatever body you're living in and whatever sort of eating disorder or disordered eating you're experiencing. I know we have a lot of international listeners, so my apologies for getting a little bit Australia specific, um, but let's say... um, I don't see a regular GP. I think there's a really common thing these days. I think in the past people would have one go-to person and now it's more common to just go see whichever bulk billing GP is available when you need them. Um, Do I need to go and see somebody to get a referral before I can see a psychologist? Is that just to access rebates? Are there still rebates available? What do those look like? Sort of, What are the parameters around that? And also, do I book in with a psychologist first and then get assessed by them and then potentially referred to a dietitian or the other way around? How might that look? Yeah, great, great question. Um, Again, (laughs) 
there's no right way to do it. And really whatever feels most comfortable and easiest, you know, for some people coming to talk to a dietitian um, about food might feel like the safest and easiest thing to do first. In other cases, coming to see a psychologist might feel more comfortable and that capacity to talk about the self more broadly. So you can, you can get a mental health care plan to come and see a psychologist, which will give you rebates. That doesn't cover dietetic appointments. There is an enhanced care plan. Is that the right term? I think they might have changed the name, but um, it's like a some G- GP management plan, I uh, think it's yeah. called now. So the, the, There is that way to access dietetic appointments. What we now have here in Australia, which you know, we are just, so lucky um, is an eating disorder plan and for for some, for some people uh, that means that they can access 40 rebated psychology sessions a year and 20 dietetic sessions a year so that is coming up close to recommended treatment doses which you know was really exciting in 2019 when that was released. Yeah, I think I remember that actually. And we are so fortunate. And I speak to colleagues in the US in particular, because that's the country that we have a lot of ties to, um, certainly in other countries, about like funding options for clients and things of that nature. And we really are so fortunate um, in what we have access to here. And I know that, you know, in the US, for example, a lot of people might not have access to healthcare and then have to take some of that into their own hands or, you know, maybe into the family unit and to try and care for each other um, really as best as they can, which of course is is not ideal and not something that we're going to give specific advice to um, other than being there for people and being, um, you know, kind and supportive. And I think I'll just highlight one more time and I've said it, <laughs> quite a bit in the episode that we just released where I shared some of my story. But I think as an individual, if it's not helping refer someone to someone, one really important thing that you can do is just not to comment on somebody's weight, Um, whether they've (laughs) lost weight or whether you notice that they've gained weight. Commenting in either case is not going to be helpful. Even if you feel like it's complimenting that person, you're saying that oftentimes thinner is better or different is better. Um, and or you're looking well. Yes, right. And I heard that so many times yeah. when I was looking very unwell. Um, and it is really difficult because rather than being the compliment that you intended it to be, it kind of becomes the opposite. It becomes, well, now I need to maintain this or continue on this path to continue getting those kind of compliments. The alternative is you know, becomes almost like a, an insult, um, even though you didn't directly insult the person. And so I think that the most important thing we can do as much as we think that we want to help is just to not comment. And that can be mm. difficult, but so important. Such, yeah, it, it's so important. And sometimes it feels like we live in a little echo chamber at our practice <laughs> and we just don't hear body comments, appearance comments at all. And one of the most beautiful things about that is it actually creates space for much more meaningful compliments if if we feel that giving a compliment is something we want to do in that moment. Mm. You know, Georgia, you always energise me. Um, Being around you is a really energising experience. And I say that authentically, but also is an example of something that that we hear around our practice. Um, 
because yeah, those those sorts of body comments or appearance comments are so detrimental. And I think it's also reminding us that there's more to us than our body. Yeah, so much more. <laughs> yeah, the body. I mean, we are the most interesting part. Oh no, our bodies are the least interesting part about us. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and it's also I stole a really that nice. Dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really nice segue as well too into my next question, which is about the haze approach. So haze stands for health at every size. Um, what is a haze approach? What does it look like? When we were writing this one, we were like, let's split it so we can both talk about it. <laughs> it's something I think you'll be able to tell that we're quite passionate about. And I, I truly believe that everyone should be practicing from a haze or a weight inclusive um, approach. Um, for me, um, haze, if, if we're looking at even what it stands for, health at every size, for me, it essentially acknowledged that each and every person has an individual body. So they deserve individual care for their health. I mean, that means that weight is not the thing that we're measuring. Weight is not the indicator of health. We're looking at that holistic approach. What is it that my body is communicating with me and what is it that my body needs? But even outside of that, what does my mind need? What does my brain need? What does my gut need? (laughs) The whole body approach. And I think... I know that's a very general broad spectrum, but if we're looking at then how I draw on that in my space, I look at that as we practice in that our body, this synergy of systems, of amazing systems that when we're connected and we're functioning, allows us to move about the world, experience and joy. So in treatment, if we're looking at the Hayes model, and this is sort of my approach, is that we learn to understand the role that nutrition plays in an active body, developing a peaceful relationship with food, how movement feels in our body, learning how to check in with my body if it doesn't quite feel right, and then how do I help care for that? Learning to connect by understanding sensations and cues and communication, And then, of course, my favourite is defining and demanding the space that you deserve to take up in the world. And there's a quote that I love. I heard it ages ago. I should probably know who it's by. But it (laughs) was, um, your body is not the masterpiece. It's the paintbrush. Your life is the work of art. And when I'm practising, I think about, well, awesome. How do we paint the best picture that we need in our life? That's mine. I love that quote so much. I know. How do you follow yeah. that? <laughs> no, no. I actually, which anyone who knows me um, who's listening will know is not actually an unusual thing, but I teared up when I read that. It's so, <laughs> so beautiful and, and so completely true, isn't it? I think um, working from a health at every size lens, I think that also does require, you know, people like Nicole and I to acknowledge that we come to this conversation from a position of slim, white, able-bodied privilege and that we don't have the same lived experience as as many of the people who are really talking about this issue um, of experiencing sort of weight weight stigma and and discrimination. We we like to feel that we've listened really carefully to those people, um, to our clients and to those people who have a public voice in this space and that we will continue to listen and learn from them. And and I think that's really 
important for us to acknowledge in our therapeutic space as well as well as any sort of public space where we're talking about this. Some of the things that tend to come up in in the work that I do with people have come to me is to just really acknowledge that, that sort of as Nicole said, all bodies are good bodies, mm-hmm. and no body is defined by the size of it and that we don't make assumptions about bodies based on their size. Um, We also, you know, I think there was a a period 10 or 15 years ago where psychologists were regularly reassuring their clients that they wouldn't get fat during recovery. And I I know so many clinicians who I really respect and um, admire and who are leaders in this space now who are mortified by the the way the message that was sort of driven through health spaces um, historically. So it's really sort of being able to acknowledge and address the wrongs of the past um, and moving towards a, a future where healthcare isn't based on body size, but more about helping people to feel at home in their bodies. So I like to bring in a bit of you know really healthy feminist anger. And as, as Nicole said, you know, like, who are we to spend our lives trying to not take up space um, and to really help people connect to who they are as a person and what matters ab- about them? And that doesn't mean that we think we have this conversation once and people throw out their weight loss goal. We live in a world where that has been drummed into us for a very long time. But if we can acknowledge the, the harm that this sort of stigmatisation of bodies has, then I think we can work towards helping individuals improve their relationship with their body. You're both amazing. Um, (laughs) I have a question for Nicole kind of related to that, um, which is something that does come up sometimes, particularly in my work in exercise physiology and exercise science, is around sometimes the interplay between weight um, and chronic pain. And so sometimes you'll see clients who maybe are struggling with knee pain and they've been told over and over again by doctors they need to lose weight to improve the pain. Um, And when I'm thinking about, you know, how am I going to go and you know, use my body as a brush to paint this tapestry, but I find being held back by pain, Mm. that's something that is really, really difficult. So what's the Hayes approach or what's your approach in that kind of a situation? Yeah, and I've seen a number of clients who walk through my door, there's the same thing saying, well, yeah, okay, so you're telling me my body, this is my body, I need to accept my body, but why am I experiencing this pain or I can't do that thing I used to be able to do? And I think it's, Again, acknowledging that and going, okay, right. So if we feel like we're not able to function or we're not able to do that thing we used to do, let's still look at it holistically. If weight might be part of that, is that because we're not in our natural body that genetically we need to be in? Whether that's because there are some other factors that are contributing to a changed body. We don't make it the focal point, but we go, well, let's look at all the factors that contribute to my health and well-being. Let's Think about all the factors that contribute to my mobility. Let's also zoom out as well and that we're not saying that I have knee pain because of my weight. What might be some other reasons I might have knee pain as well? How might I go seek an exercise physiologist to help me strengthen or help with that mobility and function as well? So I think when it's how I approach and hopefully how sort of the haze 
lens looks at it is it's not zooming in on one aspect or it's not zooming in on weight as the sole reason or the sole um so what I'm looking for the the sole factor that's contributing to that outcome it's acknowledging what's my whole body need what are might be some of those factors that are contributing to a change in my health and well-being and how can I nourish my body or how can I move my body to help support that I hope that answers your question really well really well and and I think it's it's such a helpful lens to think about things through um because obviously there are lots of factors you know there are also foods that make us feel good and foods that don't make us feel great you know and that doesn't mean that um I'm slipping back into an eating disorder because I'm avoiding a food too often because I know it makes me feel sluggish or gravitating towards foods that I know help me to go out into the world and to enjoy my life or you know things that I know are going to contribute towards me sleeping well or me being able to move well and that goes both ways as well too and being social and sure I might go out and I want to eat more when I'm out with my friends because that makes me feel really wonderful and connected to society I agree I think it's not hyper focusing it's zooming out and trying to look at that overall holistic view of what my body what my mind what I need for health and well-being and and what my life is because what a reasonable goal to want to be able to use your body to do the things you enjoy isn't that kind of what we all deserve um and so if you know if martial arts for example is the thing that that you love to do, how reasonable is it to say pain is getting in the way and I need some help? Um, in, in the same way that it's such a reasonable goal to want to feel sort of internally safe and to feel that our sense of belong, belonging and community um, is safe. And I think when we're coming from a haze lens, we really honour the reasonableness of wanting those things and we also highlight the way that the pursuit of weight loss or seeing size or weight as the one factor to sort of chase those things is harmful. And, and as Nicole sort of so beautifully described, kind of zooming out actually and looking at all the factors that might help someone get those things they so reasonably deserve. We love. Um, okay, let's say I've listened to this podcast or whatever I've done and now I've identified some signs, maybe in myself or someone close to me. I've made an appointment, whether it's with um, my specialist dietitian, whether it's with a psychologist, um, maybe even with a GP, although GP wait times aren't usually that long. But I know with some of these specialist roles, sometimes there can be a little bit of a wait. So I might call up and say, hey, Nicole, I want to see you. And Nicole says, yeah, I can get you in in three weeks time or you know sometimes it can be two months time what are some of the things that I can do in between having made that appointment and when I have that appointment good question and we are so excited that the wait times are so much less than they were a year ago but but you're right that's certainly it's very rare for someone to to sort of call and be in clinic the next day we were really excited, actually, um, and we haven't had a chance to read it in detail, but the, the recent national plan here in Australia has really highlighted the importance of self-help resources. Um, so I think more and more we'll have really good evidence-informed self-help resources to refer people who might have to wait for a little while. I think, I think something you touched on, and I think, Nicole, you've touched on a, a little as well, is the engaging of safe support people. Mm-hmm. 
We really are looking at including um, supports more and more in the treatment space and, and it's never too early to let people who we can trust and who we can rely on know we need a little support and help. Uh, also really acknowledge that having safe people, particularly around this topic, is it, not always easy. And so, you know, doing some research around whoever your local sort of advocates are in this space. I know that that we have more and more what's called peer support workers, so people with lived experience who are working you know, around the world in treatment spaces um, who can provide support for people struggling with the, the things we've been talking about today. Um, and more and more sort of, I think, well-resourced, quality controlled or you know sort of safety controlled support groups available as well which people might be able to tap into sort of faster than they can get um, an appointment. I sometimes direct um, if it's a parent or um, a support person to Eating Disorders Fam- Family Australia. I always get that acronym wrong. EDFA. <laughs> <laughs> um, I direct them to them because there's some wonderful support groups in there as well. Um, Butterfly Foundation, Eating Disorders Victoria as well, wonderful information hubs. Um, otherwise, my number one thing that I encourage anyone who calls and I might have a bit of a wait is we want to stay engaged with the GP so at least we know that someone is monitoring them or at least there's someone that they can check in and escalate care if they need to. Um, but it is really exciting to know that the wait isn't as long as it used to be anymore, which um, I think is, is so so wonderful that we can have accessible care. Yeah, absolutely. I was very excited when the wait times <laughs> come down. Yes. Uh, I've said this to Deb before. Uh, I um, often would get a bit stuck being like, I really want to recommend this clinic or these practitioners. And this was across, you know, multiple clinics. Um, So it is really nice now to be able to say to people like, yeah, actually, you can just book an appointment, you know, and you'll be in soon rather than being like, if you're thinking you might need someone in two months time, plan ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, Now, this is a martial arts podcast. um, So we'd be amiss if we didn't come back to talking about this strong intersection between really sport um, and eating disorders, uh, there is an additional lens that we uh, have here in martial arts, particularly because they are weight-classed sports. Um, So not all classes or not all sports will require athletes to weigh in before they go to compete, um, but all of ours do. Um, So it's a, a really difficult thing for folks to navigate because you know, so many reasons. It's a very normalised conversation within martial arts gyms to ask people about their weight, to see what weight class are you in, um, both to try and find training partners who are going to be similar sizes to you, but also checking in to make sure, like coaches checking in to make sure students are going to be ready to compete. Um, And then it just becomes like a normal part of conversation. It's very normal for people to be talking about dieting. It's very normal for people to be talking about other extreme forms of weight loss, including dehydration. Um, So it's difficult. And and I've spoken at length about how some of those things caused um, and then also I think ultimately helped me heal from some of the issues that I was experiencing. But what are some of the things we can do in the martial arts space to think about... um, helping somebody who might be struggling with an eating disorder who is a competitor in particular in a martial art? Yes, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
I, I can put my two cents in a little bit because I think for the broader, like you were saying before about sports and eating disorders, it's an area that I'm very passionate about, but it's an area that just needs so, 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 so much more work. I think there's this bias that athletes' bodies are to be modified and which feels like this, it, like you said, this assumption is normal. It's something that is such a common conversation that it, it feels just so normative. But because I think it is so normal, there is that risk then that it becomes invisible in a way. That, like you said, the eating disorders may not be detected or it might even just feel so normal. But then thinking about as well, after they're an athlete and they're retiring or um, they might be changing their direction as an athlete, how do we know how to pivot? How do we know how to go back into quote-unquote normal eating or natural eating as well? So I think the conversation around sports is very big because there's lots of different parts of that conversation as well. And I also respect it like in martial arts, we do have to meet certain weights as part of the sport, but I think it does call for a lot more regulation to be coming in as well. What might be some guidelines, what might be some safe practices that we can incorporate as part of that sport or to help support the athletes and especially for retiring athletes as well, what support do they also have as well to be able to navigate what, how their body works, how to nourish their body, how to move their body as well. I think if an athlete presents to my clinic um, and presenting with maybe a suspected eating disorder or a diagnosed eating disorder or even just feeling so disconnected with their body, how I still practice and approach doesn't change because at the end of the day, it's an individual who's in front of me that has a body that has requirements, regardless if that's sort of a top athlete or whether that's sort of your everyday sporting we want to make sure we're nourishing our body to provide the fuel to be able to do that. And I think then that broader conversation around, well, what advocacy do we need to be doing on behalf of that client? What other people are we involving in that conversation to make sure that while this client might still be competing or doing intensive training, how are we also navigating recovery work as well and trying to bring in that nourishment on the other side, and I think maybe Deb can speak more to the psychology as well, is we've sort of touched on that thought that there's that human trait that if we are trying to control the uncontrollable continuously, that road is leading towards distress, anxiety and stress. And for athletes who are already under such immense pressure, having that constant cycle of added layers of stress and distress because they're fighting against their own biology, I mean, that's... That's really, really tough. So trying to navigate recovery from that lens in an elite athlete or even our everyday sporting, that it's not just about going, okay, well, we need to nourish our body for the sport. We need to be nourishing this person's body as well for their everyday. Yeah. And <laughs> Georgia, I'm a bit ignorant um, about kickboxing as much as I listen to you and to... Um and to clients of mine who have participated in the Conscious Combat um, Club. Uh, but, but I think, am, am I right in my assumption that the weight categories are partly about safety, that you don't want somebody who is a much higher weight with 
you know, coming up against someone in a much smaller way. Is that, is yeah, that correct? Absolutely. So how tough, right, that this thing that's designed for safety also can be this thing that can contribute to the development of an eating disorder. It's, it's a really complex thing because there's an urge in me to say, well, just get rid of the weight categories, yeah. but that, that doesn't help um, either. I think education is really important. I think coming at it from a prevention lens, making sure that people are getting really, really good information about the choices that they're making. Um, making sure that that people within, you know, a kickboxing club, for example, um, understand the early warning signs, understand a little bit about set point, um, sort of weight, and this idea that we are biologically designed to live in particular body types. And I think it's sometimes, again, I'd love to, you know, completely change the world, um, but probably can't do that in this podcast today. <laughs> um, but uh, that sometimes something might not be right for us um, and that if we are having to make ourselves desperately unwell to fit into a sport or um, a profession that requires us to be really unwell to, to be there, perhaps having people available for that really hard conversation um, might be helpful too. Yeah, most definitely. And again, I will refer people to listen to my story because it is truly one of that where that is the main reason why I quit competing in kickboxing. Mm-hmm. And that you can participate in the Conscious Combat Club and no one is ever going to weigh you or <laughs> yeah. ask how much you weigh or anything like that because we are not competing. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we go to start to step in the ring, then that does become a conversation. And it, and it is also scaled as well too. So at the amateur level, typically you're seeing, you know, weighing in immediately before going to compete, which generally speaking is healthier because it doesn't mean that you can, you know, control every single variable to hit a small number for a moment um, and then you know, rehydrate or whatever it is for the next 24 hours. And certainly on a spectrum of combat sports, Ones where we're weighing in just before we step on the mat or step in the ring tend to be better. But they're not foolproof either because you'll then get people who will still try and find loopholes within that system and then compete in what are dangerous sports, not at 100%, either dehydrated or underfed. Um, And so you still see that, for example, within Brazilian jiu-jitsu where we're weighing in just before we go to step on the mat. Um, But then some people are competing at two in the afternoon and not having eaten before doing a very, very high intensity bout of exercise. Um, And so I'll I'll sort of give some of my recommendations for coaches here um, because they'll be more specific to martial arts and you can chime in where you can because it is a whole other world to understand. So for grappling sports, my recommendation is to compete at the weight that you are on the week of the competition. So what that means is enter the competition before the cutoff date for the, the fee going up at whatever weight class you guess that you are, um, whatever you were last time, for example. So like a tangible example of this is for a competition that I did on the weekend. I entered at the weight that I competed again in previously, which was lightweight. Um, the week before the competition, I was not looking like being in that category. So I moved into the next bracket. So I moved up, yeah. right? That meant that when I weighed in, I was towards the lower end of that bracket, but I'm still with I'm within the bracket. 
right? And it meant that I got to eat breakfast. Um, and it's also aligned with the kind of messaging that I want to send to people because it's hard. Part of me is like, I'm scared to go in that weight class. It would be safer for me to go in the smaller weight sure. class. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it does not actually make that much of a difference that it's worth for me, it's not worth risking my mental health. Um, and I'm also just not getting paid to compete. Um, so I think for most people listening who are not professional athletes in the true sense of the word, like they do not make the majority of their income from competing, which is nearly everyone in combat sports, um, then there's a trade-off, right? So for, for jiu-jitsu and grappling sports, it's very easy for you to change your weight class up to, I think it's like three or four days before is the final date for you to be able to do that. So that's easy. In striking sports, it's a little bit different because you do need to agree on a weight um, about eight weeks prior to when you're going to compete um, and then you've really signed a contract essentially and the other person has, you know, trained for this fight expecting you to be a professional and make that weight and if you don't make that weight, you forfeit some of your purse um, or potentially you won't be able to fight Um, and so it is important that you do select a weight that is achievable for that. Now, when it comes to selecting that weight, um, there are a few things that you can do um, that I would say are like evidence-based that are healthy. One is that you can get a DEXA done or something similar where you can actually see how much body fat percentage do you have and what would be a healthy amount for you to possibly lose. So you can see, would my BMI go below, and BMI is problematic, but would it go below what's possibly okay for me or you can have a look and see actually how much fat do I have to lose because some people think oh I could lose five kilos and they could not lose five kilos um and this is where it does get very very specific so uncomfortable (laughs) wow this is so specific um but I suppose more knowledge I guess yeah and you can work with good combat dietitians who will help facilitate this conversation because if you are competing professionally it's not one that you can avoid again it's why I stopped so yeah um you know, checking, not just guessing and being like, okay, I assume that because I'm this right now, then I could lose five more kilos and that's where I would compete. And that was, that's common. So instead of doing that, actually assess and say, okay, no, actually what I am right now is what I could be. Mm. um, And then look for an opponent accordingly. Um, And generally speaking, you know, like Deb said, the matching of people for size is important three kilos, five kilos is not necessarily going to make that much of a difference in terms of the safety, but in terms of your um, other types of safety, Mm. like people die cutting weight, Mm. um, in terms of your ability to defend yourself with somebody kicking and punching you is very important as well. Um, So, you know, working with a professional to be able to balance that and just certainly not saying – to your coach or just to other people on your team, like what do you think I could get down to? That is the common practice and that is what we want to try and avoid. Um, And then considering, you know, again, whether competing at that high, high level is something that you really, really want to do and whether it's going to be worth it for you and having that, um, I suppose, just being willing to have that ongoing conversation, which for me was something that I wasn't willing to have for a long time um, until I was right and then having people nearby who are sort of waiting in the wings to to not necessarily tell you you need to stop doing this thing but waiting for you to come to them and say hey I think this might be a problem and then being okay with that which again I was very fortunate in having so I think broadly the grappling sports tend to be more friendly towards um health at every size Mm -hmm. certainly Mm -hmm. um and so that would maybe if someone's thinking that that's a consideration in choosing a combat sport. That's where I would go if they're wanting to compete. Um, and if competing's not an issue, then 
you know, they're all great. You don't ever need to worry about it um, unless you are stepping in the ring, apart from, of course, the pressures that we've put on ourselves and all the things we've spoken about in this conversation today. But hopefully that gives people some like, actionable guidelines rather than, um, yeah, just trying to think about doing your best, which is often really hard in, in <laughs> yeah. combat sports. It's very specific issues that we're, we're coming up against. And I think wanting to do our best versus maybe what our body might be able to do as well if we have gone through multiple cycles of those extreme measures, that pressure that we're also putting on our body to perform it where we want to be performing too would just be so tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's certainly a lot. Yeah. Rounding towards the end of this conversation, are there any things that either of you would like to highlight to this audience um, and also can people, you know, find out more information anywhere, um, stuff like that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Georgia, always. Um, Nicole and I could talk about this forever probably, but would you like to start? Um, well, first of all, conversation's coming to an end. Sad. <laughs> um, uh, so where you can find more information about us specifically or about, yeah. So we have a website. Person-centered psychology, PC psychology, or PC psychology. dot com. Right. Au. Maybe you should be giving the information. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is an Instagram, which is PC psych Melps. I should have checked. <laughs> Georgia, can you please put we'll something? Put in can we in the can show put the links in? <laughs> we'll put that um, in the show notes. No worries. Sorry, Alice. And if you have a look at our Instagram this week, we will be posting quite a bit about body image and eating disorder week. Um, we've got some different themes and categories for each day that we're going to be posting about different ways of raising awareness or information about um, eating disorders or body image, but also where to reach out and what to look out for as well definitely some passion projects that we're putting our minds to for this week but we also rant about it all the time so keep a look out on our instagram as well um yeah yeah beautiful so. thank you and, and just i guess a, a concluding thought sort of looping back to the beginning and and the theme of of the week um that we are leading into that the time is now and it doesn't matter where you are in your journey um if you are listening today and something has sparked in you, whether it's concern for yourself or concern for somebody else, it's never too late, but you also don't have to wait. Um, reach out. So beautifully said. And thank you both so much for donating your time very generously to share all your knowledge, um, both now and also just ongoing all of the conversations that we have while practicing under the same roof. I certainly appreciate both of you more than you can imagine. Oh, and that goes that goes both ways, Georgia. Absolutely. We feel so grateful to have you in our lives. Yeah, definitely. And, and thank you for asking us on this podcast. It's a privilege. Thank you for being part of the club. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, please refer to the information in the show notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. 
We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me, heard at the beginning and end of every episode. If you'd like to connect with Nari, you can find her on Instagram at Nari to know that Nobody shapes me but me. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless I fear nothing, no complacence Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this Poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders You don't need to know my history, I move boulders Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers This goes deeper than empowerment, cause I'm the one to power it Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives No longer isolated, but elevated and selective Darkest places become beautiful spaces This is where rage meets patience Meets power meets gracious Meets, we're so glad you came in, the feeling is contagious When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions You the soul and body, hold it all and still remember But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders Forgot what it was like to have control over self Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars Barriers and obstacles They can't cage me They can't chronicle All my experiences And reduce them to appearances When I was truly beaten Gave myself clearances to fall down Mess up and get myself back up I'm not looking for clovers Cause I don't believe in luck Damn you were badass I heard them say it clearly Why thank you very much I know now I'm not weary Of what's next for me Cause I expect to see Growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be The positivity and accountability Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin Boundaries, I know them well, take a breath and meditate Who is she? I know her well, now I get to open gates One, two, one, two, I don't need your permission And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition To know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing And everything I do, that's me making decisions Is truly underrated, the value of self-worth Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?